Hi, everybody. Welcome to the May 8, 2015 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on former CIO panelist and Denver Post editorial page editor Dan Haley taking over as the head of the Colorado Oil and Gas Association. Patty Calhoun from Westward. Uh, this seemed like a smart move. Dan Haley's uh, uh, pretty suave. He's media savvy. Uh, people tend to like him. It sounds like this is going to be a, a pretty good uh, catch for Koga. What do you think? Well, too suave for this table, obviously. <laughs> Clearly. Uh, he's following in Trisha Schuler's footsteps, and she was a really smart um, a smart move for the gas, oil and gas group. Dan Haley will be another really good one, someone who can talk to all kinds of people, breaks all the stereotypes, and it's wonderful to know there is life after journalism. <laughs> David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Sounds like uh, Co is certainly making sure they're ready for whatever fracking wars are going to be happening in the next two years or a year and a half when it comes to the ballot issue. What do you think of Dan Haley being the new CEO? Brilliant move. I think he has all the virtues Patty said as well as a really strong strategic sense and Koga's right to realize that they'll never return to peacetime. There is a fraction of the left which hates uh, oil and gas as much as the Ayatollah Khomeini hated humor and thinks it's immoral and just wants to get rid of it and they will they will never ever stop so Koga is always going to be playing uh, some defense for a long time I believe Bill Owens uh, was uh, a former head of Koga as well so perhaps we will one day be seeing Governor Haley that's that's awfully mean of you to say that Dan I, I'm sure that he would not appreciate that as a you know possibly being a future governor I'm sure he'd like, enjoy that uh, Ed Seeler from Denver Business Journal um, do you think folks on the uh, activist side of things, fracking activists are against it, uh, see this as something that they need to respond to? You have a pretty heavy hitter uh, now heading Koga. I don't know how they feel like they're going to respond. It's not like they're bringing in somebody to run Koga who is intently familiar with the inside baseball of the industry. I mean, they're bringing in somebody from the outside, so I would imagine this is a bit of a, a curveball. If, if your intent was to uh, attack Koga and attack industry groups, as a fractivist, this is not going to help you. Um, and it'll be curious to see exactly how Haley, who is, as everyone says, very media savvy, can get that message out in different ways than Koga has. I mean, frankly, during the last election, Koga seemed to be overshadowed by CRED, the, uh, the group that many of their members helped to fund. Um, but will it kind of ascend back to that place of first-in-line uh, first media sources that, uh, that I think some of its members want it to be at? Penfield Tate, Attorney Greenberg Traurig, longtime state lawmaker. Uh, what do you think of the appointment? You know, I think it's interesting. Clearly, it signals Koga's intent to sort of arm up for the coming um, um, media and, and public relations, public um, awareness campaign that's coming up over the fracking issues. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the fracking activists uh, respond because uh, the, the key to this whole battle is communicating with people and getting your point across. And I think everybody's had a difficult time doing it up to this point, but smart move by Koga. Denver's municipal elections were held on Tuesday, and while Mayor Hancock cruised to re-election, two incumbent council members were defeated in surprising upsets, Susan Shepard in District 1 and Chris Nevitt in the Argers race. Meanwhile, four of the six open seats in the council will go to a runoff election in June. Patty, uh, there wasn't any major uh, surprise in the mayoral race since there wasn't any major competition, but the auditor's upset, and I guess even though some people thought seat, uh, District 1 could go that way, seeing the first incumbent lose uh, since, what, 1987 uh, seemed pretty surprising. What did you think? 
Well, I think people who want, thought about running for mayor and didn't because they thought, no way will we beat an incumbent, might be kicking themselves now because the loss, Chris Nevitt's loss, for example, showed even though he wasn't an incumbent for this specific auditor job, he had the money, he had the background, he, um, and he lost, and he lost big to someone, Tim O'Brien, who's got good experience as an actual financial professional, but does not have a big name, did not have the big developers on their side, didn't even have Dennis Gallagher's endorsement. So, and Susan Shepard, although she had been an incumbent who was under attack by some, some still, the fact that she lost by as much as she did when a lot of her supporters were the supporters for Hancock indicated maybe if there had been real competition for Hancock, he could have faced problems. Also, for example, Paul Cashman, who won, and won handily, won against someone who was much more of a development, well-funded candidate. He was the former publisher of the Washington Park Profile. So I think we're seeing that voters are really interested in upsetting the status quo. They are upset with development around Denver. They want to see a discussion of it, even if they don't necessarily want to see it stopped. David, what did you think of the results in the Denver City election? Well, it, again, it, it shows the, most of all the power of Colorado inside out, because Kevin <laughs> Flynn, <right. laughs> another one of our uh, past and, and frequent panelists, uh, made it to the runoff, and he will be uh, one of the two fight against John Kidd uh, for one of uh, one of the council seats. And, and obviously, we know about the star power he had, and he was mobbed with people seeking autographs. And oh my God, he'd been on on <laughs> television. A petition can can I just touch you? Can I can I look at you? <laughs> Denver, like the European Union, has a democratic deficit, which is, yeah, there are elections, but unfortunately they don't seem to change much. And even for all Patty said about how there, there were these upsets, and, and that's fine, we are, have what I think is the, what's called the strong mayor system of government. And so the guy who has almost all the power didn't even have real opposition. And so folks who hope that the election results will be... A, lead to a change in growth policies, I think we'll be disappointed because really our uh, Denver's elected city council has uh, not much power compared to the mayor. Ed, what, what do you think has been the general uh, reaction from the city? I mean, while we, there's not much to react to with the mayoral race, the auditor's race, uh, uh, Shepherd's District, and just overall the different winners, what has been the reaction? Well, it, it's hard to kind of figure out the reaction. And I think this was such a low-profile race in general because Hancock didn't have a, um, a competitor a real competitor, um, that you almost have to look at who lost and see what it says. And I think a couple groups definitely came out losers of this. One, labor. Chris Nevitt and Susan Shepard were both very closely tied and employed in some ways by uh, labor organizations. It does not help that they, uh, the labor cause, that they're both gone now. Met, er, marijuana candidates lost mm. badly. Uh, Chris Chiari, an outspoken advocate, last in his district race. Kayvon Kalibari, who I had said just a couple weeks ago, this could be the surprise mm -hmm. in the at-large. 7% of the vote, that's not getting, not getting your name out. That's an outright rejection of what you stand for by the voters. I think if I were in the marijuana industry, I'd be worried about some tighter regulations right now. And then lastly, has been mentioned, known entities lost. It wasn't just Nevitt and Shepard that we're talking about here, but three former legislators, Gene Labuda, Ann McGee, and Fran Coleman, all couldn't even make it to the runoffs. Um, 
the tough part, though, is saying who won. It's really hard to figure out, at least until after the runoffs are over, what everybody stands for. I think there's been kind of a, hey, let's be tighter on development talk here. There's also a big strain of we need more affordable housing going through this. And and while Hancock has started on that, uh, maybe the winner out of this, very quietly, could be Hancock's push for localized construction defects reform, which he has sworn to take on in his second term. And now he has a whole bunch of new people who are ready to go after affordable housing. Penn, do you think the, the four open seats that now have runoffs for June, do they take any lessons from what they saw in May? I, I think they do. If, if you look at, at where we've been, I, I, and I agree with that to an extent, I don't think there are any clear winners. I think it's interesting that the mayor had no real opposition and only garnered 80-some percent of the vote. There are some people saying, why didn't he get 95 percent of the vote? Um, one candidate only had one name, you know, and, <laughs> and so that's part of the question. I think there is a strong sentiment of discontent in the city. I think that people will be fooling themselves if they think that if you just look at the mayor's race, everything's hunky-dory and people want to move forward. I think it's telling that of the six open seats, four are in runoffs. That tells you, and in a number of the cases, there were multiple candidates. So clearly there is some fracturing of thoughts, uh, you know, opinions and concerns um, in uh, about the direction of the city. I think the, the pro-development bias is perceived by some people is what doomed Susan Shepard, even though she was closely aligned with labor, as was Kristen Evett. Um, I, I think that some thought she was too pro-development, and I think many th believed that this administration and too much of city council is pro-development. It's going to be interesting to see how all of these runoffs shake up. Um, in the Nevitt situation, I think what, what happened with Chris was um, Tim O'Brien's campaign was remarkably low-key. It was elect a CPA for auditor. And that had, I think, an, an appeal to certain people, primarily who don't understand that the auditor doesn't really perform a financial auditing function for the city. There's a, they hire a CPA firm to do the annual audit, and, and the Denver City Audit, much like the state auditor, which is what Tim used to be, looks more programmatic operations. So um, it'll be interesting to, to see. I don't think construction defects is going to necessarily cruise through in Denver because, as we saw on the state level, there's, there's no tie between changing construction defects and guaranteeing the, develop of afford, the development of affordable housing. With the 2015 legislative session coming to a fast and furious end on Wednesday, let's take a look at what bills survived and what bills died in the flurry of activity during the final days of the session. Uh, David, it was, I guess, uh, you know, we have Ed here to talk. He was you know, our, our guy in the trenches. So we can talk to him about this. But as you saw those last 10 days go by and all the different bills go back and forth, House versions, things died and then were revived and came back and then died again. It was crazy. What were the highlights for you? Uh, one of the highlights was nothing that was really major that was introduced late and that was a, a you know, huge and complex thing to understand went through. And, and uh, Penn will uh, disagree with me on, on this, but I, I think at least the, his, his, the proposal he was involved in on uh, bonds to pay for state pensions is a, a thing that ought to be studied carefully, and I'm sure we'll come back in some version uh, next year. I'm, I'm glad we'll, there will be more time to, to look at it closely. I would call it a very successful session compared to its 
2013 predecessor because nothing disastrous happened. We didn't pass some bill like Senate Bill 258 back in 2013 to jack up massively electricity rates for people in rural Colorado. So I think the people there have to be happy that there's been at least a ceasefire in, in the war on, on rural Colorado. The education testing change bill, I think, was the, the legislature working really well. There were people on the right wing and on the left wing of the Colorado Education Association that might have just wanted to wipe out testing. I think the governor did a good job on leadership of saying, no, that goes too far. And, and what came out was something to pare back maybe some excessive testing, but not, not to get rid of it entirely. And they, they did the right thing. It's unfortunate that the governor said he's going to veto uh, the red light camera bills. He's on certainly on the wrong side of public opinion and of the legislature, but he's a former mayor and he's on the right side of municipal revenue raising, which is really the purpose of, of red, the, the red light cameras. And like we said before, you were a guy in the trenches watching your Twitter feed. It was like, you know, watching, you know, like hearing Murrow during the Blitz. I was like, you're right there in the middle of the night. You're there in the middle of the night. Uh, what were your uh, highlights and impressions from the final days? You, you know, the, the final days kind of encapsulated what the entire session was. And that was, I think in the nine years I've been there, I've never seen so many big ideas thrown out in one session. They're, you know, just even from the business end, everything from trying to redo the state's housing market with a construction defects reform bill to, to on the other side, you know, running through a homeless bill of rights to, to overrule Denver and Boulder and some of these camping bans and give people more rights in the business and business districts. Um, and in the end, almost nothing passed. Uh, I hearken to the words, frankly, of, of Kelly Bruff, the Denver Chamber President, who said it was a lot easier to kill something than to talk about something this year. It seemed like the, the two sides one, had no interest in sitting down and negotiating compromises, even of ideas that, that had some popular support, even if the details weren't in there. It seemed like everything was going to die in the other chamber on a six-to-five party line vote, in, or a three-to-two uh, party line vote if you're in the, uh, in the Senate. And I look particularly at the, the last couple weeks and the issue of transportation funding that was going through. So first you have the governor come out with his plan. I'm going to move the hospital provider fee, and we're going to talk about that more in a second. That's going to give money to roads. And then you have the Senate Republicans come out with a plan that says, no, 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 we're going to, we're going to redo the trans bonds. We're going to get $3.5 billion there. And then a third Republican plan comes up from Bill Cadman late in the session um, involving some moving around of stuff under the Tabor cap. And nobody ever sat down to say, okay, what's the best way we can get transportation funding? All of those bills died on party lines and committees in the other house, and we are no closer to actually fixing our roads than we were today. And that is kind of the session in a nutshell. People had a lot of ideas. They had little time to sit down and talk about them. Penn, you're a former lawmaker. Does this feel at all familiar from what you experienced, or is this an entirely new animal? No, it feels familiar, uh, and, and, and I would offer to people who say that things are much more partisan and contentious now than back in the good old days, you had to be there during the good old days. They weren't necessarily that good. Uh, things were just as contentious and partisan then. A couple of observations. Uh, I, I hear people criticize this particular session about all these big ideas that came up late. That's not unusual. Usually a lot of big ideas come up late because you spend 110 days of the session trying to negotiate compromises and get buy-in and consensus before the bill drops on the desk of whichever chamber you start it because you don't want to start with a fight and then have to fight your way through the entire session. So many of the big ideas that failed failed because where people thought there were compromises and agreements, 
people got cold feet at the last minute when everybody's focusing and people who had sort of tentatively said, I can support the concept, it's an easy dodge to say, well, gee, now that I've seen the actual bill, it's not quite like the concept we talked about, so I'll vote no. Because voting no is easy. Voting yes and being accountable for the consequences is the hard piece. So that, that's not real surprising. I think there were some good, good developments and some, some disappointing things. I think killing the, the anti-Gaylord bill was the right thing. Um, I always worry when we run legislation to deal with a discrete, specific issue and don't think about the longer-term ramifications. And on the flip side, I think that's what the legislature did by passing the TIF reform bill and changing the way urban renewal authorities will now be constituted and how they have to work or maybe won't be able to work in cooperation with other governmental bodies. Um, I think they made a mistake in terms of raising the limit on what the payday, limit, payday um, lending um, restrictions apply to. So now you have a larger um, group of loans that can be made to folks that don't have those um, safeguards for consumers. But I also think killing the construction defects bill was the right thing to do because we still haven't come up with the formula that provides some relief for developers but also ties to getting what we really need, which is affordable for-purchase housing. So on balance, I think the session worked out. Patty, wrap it up for us. Well, it is too bad, even though there were flaws to the construction defect bill as it finally came through, that after all the talk, and it wasn't just this 110-day session, it was everything before it, that we thought something would come out on construction defects. So there would be maybe some affordable housing and maybe just some apartments that people could kind of afford who weren't at the poverty level. And that that didn't happen is a shame, and we will see it going to the municipal level. We'll see it coming back at some point at the legislature. What was gratifying was to see that despite the very unusual alliance of the very conservative wing of the Re Republican Party and the teachers, the teachers Union, that we actually had some compromise going coming through at the end when things were so fast and furious, it was easy to say no. And we got a good compromise on the testing bill, which was important for Colorado. And it shows that when it really comes down to it, people can agree to disagree and be civil and come up with something that is for the good of the state. Governor John Hickelooper said this week that he was disappointed lawmakers did not tackle what he calls Colorado's fiscal thicket during the legislative session. The governor plans to take his proposal to the people through a series of town hall meetings this summer and fall. And you reported about this story uh, yesterday. Tell us about it and what, what is the proposal that uh, Governor Hickelooper intends to bring to these town hall meetings this year? Good. Well, I hope we've got about 40 minutes to discuss this because that's <laughs> what it's going to take to explain this. But in some sort of short summary, a bill passed six years ago to remove what is called the Arviscal bird limit. That's our complicated part coming in here that limited general fund growth. One of the uh, provisions of this bill said that only general fund money would go again to transportation only after um, we see personal income growth of 5% for a year. That happened in 2014. We're starting to see it. We're starting to get this transportation money, except there was another provision of that 2009 bill that said, oh, but if there are TABOR limits of between 1 and 3 per, TABOR refunds of between 1 and 3%, you only get half the money for transportation, and if they're more than 3% of the general fund budget, then you don't get any at all. 
lost yet? Okay, this is what Hickenlooper <laughs> is going to have to go explain to the people this year, that what he wanted to do was to take the hospital provider fee, which also passed during the, what is now looking back as a really kind of thoughtless 2009 session, um, and was put in under the Tabor cap, despite the fact that no general fund tax money goes into the hospital provider fee. Um, and he wants to take that out, make it an enterprise, that frees up $700 million a year that can still go in under the Tabor cap, and what that would do is make sure that transportation gets its funding, and it also would make sure that education and others get it. Okay, this is what he's got to pitch against people who are going to say, well, I hate the hospital provider fee anyway, because what you did is fairly illegal, and it's just used to leverage money from the federal government to pay for increased Medicaid bills, which is already hurting our state budget. But if he can pull this off, he can do two things that he did not the two major things he did not get done from say the state speech, which is untangling the fiscal thicket, which we just explained, and getting actual money that could be used to fix up I-25, I-70, and other roads that are overly congested and desperately in need of it. Uh, Penn, is this going to work? Uh, I guess it might if he brings a lot of uh, rail yard from rail yard ale from uh, Winkle Brewery. But what do you think of the likelihood of the success? Yeah, its explanation made you tired already, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> here's here's the deal, and I won't go into the governor's specific proposal, but I would hope the governor and his people sit back and reflect and say, you know what? It's time to stop pitching one-off fixes and trying to piecemeal through the budget. Somebody needs to have a logical, comprehensive conversation about the broader thicket, Tabor, 23, Gallagher, all of these things, and talk about how do we resolve this mess we've created of our budget so that we can make sane, rational, year-to-year -year or multiple-year decisions that best benefit the people of the state of Colorado. And until we have that conversation, we'll keep hearing all of these interesting and esoteric ideas, but most of the people will get lost mid-argument or mid-conversation. Patty, the town hall is a good idea? Well, it's certainly a good idea because you've got to start educating people, and it is complicated. I mean, a tangled thicket makes it look pretty. I mean, this is like Little Red Riding Hood getting lost in the woods. They're going to need more than beer. They're going to have to go to the state fairs, you know, the county fairs, and serve free pie and make people sit down and put on kabuki plays and have banjos. I don't know what they're going to be able to do to make it entertaining enough to really make people sit through it, but people need to understand this. I would guess one in a hundred people in this state has any real idea what Tabor does, much less the Gallagher Amendment, much less 23, and we really need to reconcile all those in the state constitution now. David, what do you think? Nobody in living memory in this state has been better at selling tax increases than John Hickenlooper. In his uh, tenure as mayor, he, he far exceeded all of his predecessors about getting various tax increases approved by the voters. His, he got referendum C passed statewide the largest tax increase in, in the history of the state. and He was the, the man who sold it to the voters and got it over the top. Since then, I think the magic has run out. Uh, he had a, ed, he's not been able to get any education tax increase through. In fact, his uh, education proposal was pretty resoundingly defeated. I think he's going to have a tough time going to the voters and saying, well, we got the solution that says, oh, we raise taxes on hospitals, which means we really raise taxes on patients, and we give this money in a complicated way to pay for medical welfare for people. And, okay, so that, that's a, a welfare state program, but we want to call this an enterprise fund, you know, like as if when Colorado State rents dorm rooms to students, you don't put that in the state budget because it's just operating as an enterprise. They sell you the room for a year, you pay some money for it, that's fine. The hospital tax, 
Medicaid, all that kind of stuff. That ain't an enterprise. That's the welfare state and saying, oh, we're going to take that off the books. I don't think we'll sell. Nor will saying, let's get rid of the Gallagher Amendment, because that will enable us to raise local property taxes on people's homes. Not a not an attractive proposal for most folks. Exactly. Uh, we have been a little chatty this uh, today, so let's get right to our favorite part of the the show, disgrace of the week. Patty, as always, starts off. Uh, Denver's on, ongoing gang warfare problem, and here I'm talking about Mitch Morrissey, the DA, versus the Denver Police Department. They're in a battle of some kind right now on why why the crimes aren't being solved, why no one's being charged. It'd be nice to see everyone pull together and actually come up with a plan to combat what's going on in North Denver. An entirely predictable result of the Obama plan to put Iran on this pathway uh, to becoming a nuclear warfare power. Uh, Saudi Arabia has said that it's going to start developing its own nuclear bomb, and who knows exactly what disaster will result from all this, but the likelihood of disaster uh, continues to increase. Yeah, Colorado partisanship and bitterness has nothing, apparently, on Maine, where Westbrook City Councilman Paul Emery a couple weeks ago joked about how he would be okay if Governor Paul LePage met his end and then mentioned that assassination is sometimes a political move in certain countries. I'm glad to see this is what our discussion has come to. <laughs> And well, now that we've established that Maine is a sovereign country, okay. Um, the, you know, the, 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 the VA, because the mission should be taking care of our wounded vets who come home, but the continued mess we see illustrated in Aurora, and now we find out that people knew that, that the project was in trouble months before they turned the first shovel of dirt, is, it's, it's disgusting. Say something nice, Patty? Well, with the exception of Mother Nature, who is proving that she's a real bitch this weekend in Denver, <laughs> all the mothers out there, and especially my mother, who just came up from Tucson in time for this bad weather. So happy Mother's Day, Mom. Here, here, David. Uh, former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley, who visited the state this week as part of his presidential campaign, he was a terrible governor, did a lot of damage to the state, but he is not the head of an organized crime syndicate, which puts, makes him an outstanding alternative to the Democratic frontrunner. <laughs> Ed, <laughs> um, I, uh, I was up last weekend at the Stanley Film Festival in Estes Park. Congrats to John Cullen, Britta Erickson, and everybody who's made a sense of place for that festival, maybe better than any film festival I've seen before. Very nice. Penn. Weather notwithstanding, a wonderful Cinco de Mayo celebration again this past weekend. And I will second uh, Patty's hopes for everyone have it out there to have a very happy Mother's Day. That's all the time we had tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Remember that if you missed any part of our show or want to catch our web-exclusive segment, CIO Postgame, check out CPT12.org or YouTube. And also be sure to check out the CIO podcast on iTunes. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night.